Jesus says to his disciples, will you also leave, having heard the hard thing that he says about the requirement to participate in his flesh and his blood. And all those who came seeking the next meal left. And he turns to his disciples and he said, will you also leave? And they confess, as is delivered to them by the Spirit of God, where else will we go? You have the words of life. And Jesus says, it's not because flesh and blood has revealed that to you, but the Spirit has brought that confession to your mouth. Turn your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 18 as we turn to these words of life. Exodus chapter 18, and I'll read through the entire chapter. Exodus 18.1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all God had done for Moses and for Israel's people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he had encamped at the mountain of God. When he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with him, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrificed to God. Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. People stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all these people stand around from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I, I make known to them the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law says to him, What you're doing isn't good. You and the people with you will weary or wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do this alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice. And God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them known or make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Place such men over the people as chief of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you. They will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace 
So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. And Moses let his father-in-law depart. He went away to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Today is a day in the church calendar known as Quadragesima. Today is. It's a big, old word meaning 40 from here. It's 40 days from this day to Monday, Thursday, the Passion Week. The preparation for the crucifixion of Christ, Good Friday. It's 40 days. Did you know that? It's called, by a more common term, Lent. About a third of you thought about leaving just now. And we do get a little bit squeamish because we have grown up in the place we live where there is a Roman representation, a Roman Catholic, or maybe a Lutheran representation of those things. But I want to commend to you that there is a healthy rhythm in the church calendar as God's people think about these 40. It is meant in the church calendar to draw our attention to Christ in Matthew 4. 40 days He fasted. And then He is burdened with temptation. He is confronted, assailed by the devil himself. And he is faithful in the wilderness. You remember you were here last Sunday? He is faithful in the wilderness. He is the flawless Son of God. When Israel, the children of God, had so often failed, Christ does not. And so, in this preparation for the Passion Week, the celebration of death and resurrection, it is appropriate for us to be grieving. We grieve because sin is a reality. You've heard grieving this morning. You've heard the opening scripture was from Genesis and the fall. What an egregious rebellion. And then, and then Ben expounded on that from Romans 5 and said, the sin in the garden is not one that we wag our finger at, but one that we are guilty of. That sin that is committed is the sin of us all, both in association with Adam and then in duplication of the sin. We have committed that sin. And then Pastor Will brought our attention both to the tragedy of our sin before God, but then also in that psalm there is this hope. Blessed are the righteous. This morning as we come to this text and in light of the report we heard from our dear friends, we're reminded that sin is prevalent. The reason for the struggle that they communicated to us, I say they Only one of them is able to communicate that without interruption. I hope you understand that. Um, She was appointed this week as the spokesperson for that. And he said, do you mind? I don't think I could get that out. And of course we understand. But those of you who don't know, understand that. Or you should understand that. The reason for what they describe is because of prevailing sin. It's prevalent. Uh, it's true that these places they're willing to go are unreached because the people who are the authority in those places don't want them reached. It is made to be difficult. And then the fact that we are vexed with ongoing sin means that even those people who administer the sending mission agencies struggle with 
discerning where they should go. And sin is a reality. And as we look forward these 40 days to Maundy Thursday, to Good Friday, to Resurrection Sunday, it's good for us to prepare ourselves to celebrate by reminding each other to grieve that we absolutely need a substitute sacrifice, a spotless lamb. So we're here. We're here in what has sometimes been referred to as Lent or quadragesima. We'll go with Lent. We are here in Exodus 18. And in Exodus 18, we see further expression that they are living and ministering in a fallen world to fallen people. And here we see wisdom that comes from a counselor, but in fact, the title I've given to the sermon is The Counselor Who Becomes Wise. The Bible tells us that His Word, the revelation of God, is able to make us wise even unto salvation. And Moses' father-in-law is an example of that. So in this text, you remember that we've already come through these four occasions of struggle. They cross the Red Sea, they sing a great song, and then immediately they come into these four troubles. The first one is, there's no water at Mara. Then there's no food in the wilderness of Sin. There's no water in Rephidim. And then, finally, we saw last week, there is an attack by a desert tribe, Amalek. Those real struggles are not petty. They are real struggles. Any one of us would grieve a lack of water or food or a tribe that was seeking to destroy us. And their grief in those is appropriate. Their grumbling wasn't. Their grumbling wasn't. They could have appropriately called out to God. But over and over in the book of Exodus, it is emphasized that God isn't setting people up for external rituals of religion, but His people are to be changed from the inside out. That's the nature of the new covenant. That God is not creating a people who conform externally. Please hear me say it again. God is not creating a people who conform externally, but a people who are radically regenerated from the inside out. There is a circumcision of the heart that the Spirit of God is doing in His people. And that's happening here. Now, the passage that we're going to study is different from what we've been studying. It's a sort of transition between where we've been and where we're headed. We read just a moment ago that the people are already at Mount Sinai. And we know what happens at Mount Sinai, the giving of God's law. This passage, however, reminds us on one hand of a Gentile who is going to respond in faith when hearing the revelation of the God of the Bible. On the other hand, it sets the table for the giving of God's law as Jethro gives counsel and advice for structure, we're ready for God to give structure for His people. So, in verses 1 through 7, here's how we're going to go through 18. In verse 1 through 7, there is a family reunion. And it's exciting. It's applicable to so many of us. Then in verse 8 through 12, we see a spiritual transformation happen. A Midianite priest becomes a worshiper and a covenant child of Yahweh. Then in verses 13 through 27, we see God delivering an appointment of judicial system. So, those are three breaks in the chapter. And here's how I'm going to alliterate them. The wonder of God, the wonder of God is renowned. The wonder of God is repeated. And the will of God is judicially revealed. Okay? So those are going to be my three for today. 1 through 7, 8 through 12, 13 through 27. I'm going to break them up this way. The wonder, the awe of God is revealed. 
Then Jethro sits down with Moses, and the wonder, the awe of God is repeated. Moses says, oh, there's things you don't even know. I can tell you more. And then lastly, the will of God is revealed through judicial structure. Okay, let's start in the first one. The wonder of God is renowned. This passage tells a story of the conversion of Moses' father-in-law. This has particular meaning for almost all of us, probably. If I am to say to you, think about one relative you have who is unconverted, who is dead in their trespasses and sins, probably almost all of you would think of someone, at least someone. Moses has a similar experience. His father-in-law is apart from the covenant relationship of God. Jethro is a Midianite priest. And in this text, we see Jethro come and recount what he's heard about the God of the Bible. And he meets up at Mount Sinai, or also called in the Bible, Mount Horeb. This is, seems to be a place the Midianites are familiar with, because you remember back when uh, Moses was tending to the sheep, tending to the, the herd of Jethro, and Jethro says, you should go to Sinai. Go that far, and you'll find some good pasture, some good grazing if you go toward Sinai. And that's the place where God meets him for the first time, and God promises to Moses, I promise that the thing I've sent you to do is going to work, because you're going to be back here someday with all the people that you have led free from their captivity. So it seems like Jethro is aware of this place. And this may have been an appointment that had been set before. Listen, there's something very peculiar. In verse 1, we read that the dramatic departure or salvation from Egypt has been known to the people. There's, a, there's word spreading. The, the rumor mill is working. And can you imagine in Midian, Jethro and Zipporah, every person who traveled by this. Wait, have you heard about people coming out of Egypt? Have you, have you heard about a, a great number of people who are wandering? And maybe they heard a lot of no, we haven't heard anything about that. Or maybe they heard, yes, in fact, we're familiar with what you're asking. It is happening. We, we passed that people in this wilderness or that desert. And so maybe this had been prearranged between Moses and Jethro. I don't know. But we do know that Jethro says this. Jethro accounts that he had heard everything God had done for Moses and for his people and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, here is the question, though. Why does Jethro bring Zipporah and the two boys to meet Moses at Sinai? There's, a, there's a, a wild variety of suggestions. And most of them refer back to chapter 4. Do you remember in chapter 4 when God judges Moses and his family because they had not faithfully practiced circumcision of the boys? And Zipporah has to intervene and she does the circumcision of the boys? And there seems to be this really sharp response that she gives Moses. You are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so from that in chapter 4, there are some commentators who say, this is the point where their marriage broke down. And maybe even a divorce. But that doesn't seem to be the case. I would suggest, well, I'm going to use the word suggest. I would suggest that Moses saw the severity of the task in front of him and chose to send Zipporah and the boys back before entering into Egypt. Because Jethro twice says, I'm coming to see you, and I'm bringing with you the wife of your youth. And when they arrive, they bid each other fondly, and they're united together. The Bible says that they are united together in the place called the mountain of God. Moses has referred to it this way before. This prominent mountain. Jethro had sent word to Moses, 
I, your father-in-law Jethro, I'm coming to you with your wife and your two sons. That word wife is the, the wife of your youth. I'm coming to see you. And Moses runs out to meet them. Verse 7, we read about this happy reunion with the family. But I want you to note that as Moses writes the Pentateuch, he doesn't stop and talk about, oh, what's the family been up to? And I've, I've missed the boys and how have they been? He, he doesn't stop and record domestic affairs. But he does record something that is domestic. That is the evangelism of a family member. That part, Moses says, is important. Jethro is a prominent public figure in Midian. He is what seems like the chief priest. The chief priest in Midian. For him to see this revelation of God and be convinced that the God, Yahweh, was the true God, singular, is an encouraging thing for the people. Recording this conversation between Moses and Jethro is meant to say to all the people, we are not supposed to be an exclusive people, but a means of God changing the rest of the people. So recording this and saying, look, there are outsiders, people we're going to come to refer to as Gentiles, who have heard about our God, and we rehearse our God to them, and they come into the covenant fellowship and relationship with our God. I want you to know that that is not only true in Exodus. It's true right now. Jethro is evangelized by the testimony of what God has done. The testimony of what God has done. That's true. The Bible tells us in Romans 1.19 it's true today. For what can be known about God is plain to people. God's shown it to them. For God's invisible attributes, namely that is He has eternal power and divine nature, these things about God have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made. So every person is without excuse. So the cross-reference to that is Jethro's in Midian. He's getting reports from travelers. Like, What's going on? What's going on? My son-in-law is with this group of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, they were slaves in Egypt, and, and now they got out somehow. We don't know exactly how they got out, but they got out. And they were trapped at the water, and then they crossed the water. And then they were in the wilderness, and they were starving and dying, and they got food from out of nowhere and water. And, and Jethro's in Midian, and he's hearing this account of God, and the things of God were becoming clearly perceived by Moses. And he says... I am without excuse in not believing this revelation. Jethro has no defense for not believing in the true God of the Bible. And so we read here about a conversion of a Midianite priest, his conversion to faith in the one true God is monumental. It must be assumed that Jethro's conversion would require him not just to add Yahweh to his other perceived deities, but to abandon the things he believed and the things he had taught. He, he had to forsake what he had told other people to do and have this radical change, believe in the God of the Bible. The wonder of God. The wonder of God then is repeated in verses 8 through 12. There are some things Jethro doesn't know. The testimony of God's people has always been an effective component of evangelism. Moses probably spent hours telling Jethro, yeah, so you've heard from some travelers who have passed this in the wilderness about this, this, and this, but uh, so there are these 10 amazing events that happened in Egypt. Let me tell you about them. 
So the first day, the water of the Nile turned into blood. <gasps> what? God did that? Yeah, yeah. And then this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And every time Pharaoh thought he was in charge, God reminded him he wasn't. And every time the supposed gods of Egypt thought maybe they would be a salvation, the God of the Bible proved that they couldn't save the people. And Jethro must have sat for hours. I mean, how many weeks have we talked about the Exodus? Jethro must have listened to Moses say, and then this, and then this, and then this. Recounting everything from Exodus 4 to Exodus 17. I want you to note something. I think as we come into this text, there's probably three sermons here. There's probably just how wonderful general revelation of God is in 1 through 7. And then there's this really practical lesson about how to evangelize in 8 through 12. And then there's, there's this study about how God orders things in 13 through 27. There's probably three different sermons. But I won't take time to break it into three sermons. But I do want to draw your attention to this second part. The way Moses speaks the good news. I think there's something really important for us to learn about the way we operate right here. There is a tendency that exists in much modern evangelism to just emphasize the victories. Just the victories. Just tell about the success for every believer. And, and we have to be careful because then the new believer says, okay, I heard about all the victories I have in Christ. And then the first time they have a struggle, they think, well, what went wrong with me? Why, why, why am I still struggling? But you notice, please, that Moses doesn't do that. The Bible says he told them about all the hardships they had met along the way, but then doesn't leave them there, but says how the Lord had saved them. This proper balance. In verse 9, the, the vivid, literal reading is, Jethro was delighted for all the good things the Lord had done for Israel. In other words, he's personally delighted by the facts themselves. Can I just ask you, would, would you ever consider it um, viable to sit down with your coworker over lunch to say, hey, when we go to lunch today, can I just take you out and get a sandwich? And I want to tell you the wonders of God from Exodus 4 through Exodus 17. Have you ever considered just how viable that evangelism is? And maybe, if I may say humbly, how distinct it is from most of our evangelism. What Moses shares with Jethro isn't Jethro's felt need. Don't you feel like you have this God-shaped hole in your life that only God can... He doesn't start there. Don't you want to walk on streets of gold? Don't you want to have eternal life? To live in this blessed utopia for eternity? He does not start there. He sits down with his father-in-law and says, I want to tell you just how awesome God is. My daughter is one of the young people to be baptized in a few weeks. And yesterday we were talking about her written testimony. She said, how should I start? And I said, you start with God. That's where you have to start. Because frankly, if you don't start with God, then none of what comes next, which is our sin, makes any difference. It's just sin. But if you start with who God is, then our sin is rebellion. And it's punishable by death. But well, you start with who God is. You start with God, the King, the wonder of God in His deeds, the faithfulness of God. That's where Moses starts. Look at verse 11. It suggests that Jethro had been wondering about Yahweh. See, Jethro had heard that his son-in-law had to go to Egypt to overcome what is the most prominent people on the planet at the time, and allow the slave force to be dismissed. And Jethro was like, what? Your God sent you to do that? I mean, our God just like tells us to 
like worship him and stuff, but not to do anything. You have to go do that. So Jethro has been scratching his head. Verse 10, he says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. The defeat of Egypt and Pharaoh was a testimony that the God Yahweh was able to do everything he promised to do. Jethro wondered, Moses is going to go tell Pharaoh what to do because God said so? And now here they stand back at Sinai and Jethro's convinced. This God is able to do what he says he'll do. He says he is greater than all the other gods. Not to say that Jethro becomes a polytheist, like, oh, a bunch of gods, and Yahweh's one of them. But the expression literally means all the other supposed gods are nothing compared to this God because of what he says about Egypt. How would someone show they've converted to a faith in Yahweh? What would you expect to see of a new convert? Because we're going to see in verse 12. What does Jethro do that we should expect? Friend, expectation for evident regeneration is not unreasonable. Can I say that one more time? Expectations for evident regeneration is not unreasonable. The Bible says things like old things pass away and everything becomes new. And we've become convinced that that won't be noticeable. I'm not saying you have, but I'm saying there's a culture that suggests well, we can't judge the sincerity of this or that. We don't know. How can we not know life began? I mean, how many of you had a child, your first child, and you went home and your parents said, where's the child? What child? I didn't notice. The one, you were in the hospital. Oh, oh I missed it. That's preposterous. But we take that same preposterous suggestion about spiritual life. And we think, oh, it goes unnoticed. We can't know. Don't, don't judge that. What would we expect to see? Jethro's an example of what we expect to see, and he's not the only one. Every genuine convert that we read about in the Bible displays things like this. First, Jethro begins to worship Yahweh. According to his best understanding, there's still more to be revealed by God about worshiping him. But right away, in verse 12, we see that Jethro takes up offering sacrifice. He brought a burnt offering and sacrifice to God. Secondly, he would signify the confession of his own transgression against God. The burnt offering understood as an atonement for past sin and an appeal to be forgiven. Third, he would sit down and eat a covenant meal with other covenant people who are worshiping Yahweh. The Bible says at the end of verse 12, Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. It will be, it will be evident where regeneration has happened in worship, in confession, and in fellowship with other covenant members. So, I told you before, the the renown of God is known. And then Moses repeats, like, there's some things you don't know. And Jethro's convinced. And I read for you from Romans 1. The things of God are plain. Yes, they're ignored intentionally because men love darkness. They're not welcoming in the light of true revelation. They love darkness. Their deeds are evil. And then here again in Romans 10, Moses sits down with Jethro and tells him. In Romans 10 it says, how then will they call upon him who they don't believe? And how will they believe on him who they haven't heard about? And how will they hear unless someone proclaims? 
So what I want you to understand about sharing the gospel is that the things of God are clearly seen ever since day one. And there are people all around us who see and perceive those things, but willfully ignore them. The Bible says in Romans 1 that they actually suppress the truth. They try to block it out and trade the truth in for a lie. They, they try to surround themselves with things to worship because they're created worshipers, but they worship things that are created rather than creator, okay? So they're without excuse. General revelation is in front of them since day one to today. Jethro in Midian is without excuse, friends. But Moses sits down with him for hours. He's only without excuse. He's not a worshiper of Yahweh yet. And Moses sits down with him and tells him about God. That's the truth of evangelism. Every single person on the planet is without excuse. But how will they believe in him who they have not heard? How will they hear unless someone proclaims? So Moses proclaims. And we see the evidence of conversion. I want you to notice, would you do this with me, please? Would you notice that the evidence of conversion is not a bunch of stuff that Jethro cuts out of his life? <laughs> right? That's a little misconception that we, it's subtle. We sometimes fall into that. Um, you know, I, I'm a true convert. I'm uh, not, not going to listen to um, country music anymore. That's an easy one for me because that would be easy to give up. <laughs> not going to listen to country music anymore. Some of you are like, that can't be true Christianity. And, that, and there's all kinds of things like, well, I'm not going to use, you know, bad language. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to hang out with those people. I'm not going to go there. I'm going I'm to cut all these things out of my life. And I want to just point out to you that the evidence we see most often in scripture of true conversion is not what you stop doing, but what you start doing. Like worshiping God, being with God's people, fellowship and covenant. Let me, let me take us to the third one quickly. Okay. And it's the biggest portion of the chapter. But I think there's something we can see truly about God's plan for his people. The third point is this. The will of God is judicially represented. In verse 13 through 17, we see an establishment of Jewish judicial system. Obviously, the story tells us something about the delegation of responsibility. And we could get really practical. We joked earlier as we were looking ahead to this chapter uh, we were joking as pastors about like, oh, and so now we have the justification for deacons because Exodus 18, and that is uh, not accurate. However, it is accurate to say that God does bless his people with organization. God is not like authoring confusion and chaos, but God's orderly. But there are some things about this that are very shocking. For one thing, the origin of Israel's judicial organization comes from a Midianite. <laughs> that has to be true because otherwise no Jewish person would have wrote it down. No Israelite would have made up a story about the Midianites giving God's people an organizational method. Another surprising thing is the origin of Israel's judicial system are not given by God and his direct revelation. They're given by Jethro. <laughs> this brand new believer comes and says to Moses, by the way, guys, do you relate in some ways to this? If there's anyone that's going to tell Moses he's wrong, it's his in-laws. And that, is that just true of me? Yeah. My father-in-law has been with the Lord for over 20 years. So my mother-in-law is doing double duty on making sure that I know the error of my ways. Jethro comes along as an in-law and says, that's not right. And it's shocking that this judicial system is not put in place by thus saith the Lord. As so often, God has spoken to Moses. I want to say something very important. The fact that God blesses 
Jethro's instruction says something about the common grace of common sense. The common grace of common sense. You have someone come to you as a parent, and they say, hey, when you discipline, you should do it like this. We were just talking about this uh, in staff meeting, I think, this past week. In our home, you would only get a spanking for two things. Our children would get a spanking because they defied a direct instruction. Don't eat those. And you come back, and they're all eating. That's a spanking. Don't inflict harm on other people. That's the second reason. If you harm willfully someone else, then there will be corporal punishment for you harming someone else. Those are the two reasons. And if you have a parent come to you and say, hey, when you think about how to spank or when to spank, don't do it because they broke something really important to you. You are not spanking the right way. Galatians 6.1. If you have a parent come to you and say, this is how you should spank, and you think, well, I don't read that in the Bible. I want you to understand that there are numerous occasions in our life where there is common grace that comes to us in common sense. That's what happens here. Jethro comes and says, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, you alone sit down with this long line of people trying to give them advice. This won't survive. You'll burn out here. That's true of us. You can't be all things to all people. You can't be everything your child needs. You can't be everything your coworker needs. You can't be everything your church brother or sister needs. I cannot be everything you need. Even all the elders can't be everything you need. That truth is important for us to hear. God's common grace, sometimes in common sense. Of course, Jethro does tell Moses to evaluate his instruction before the Lord. There are two more things that I want to emphasize about this passage. Look at verse 21. It's interesting that Moses' selection of judges, the word judges is the same as the book of Judges. Notice that there are qualifications in verse 21, and those qualifications involve both ability and morality. Not only to have the competence to do something, but to have the morality to do it above reproach. Often when I'm praying for people, I'll pray something like this. Lord, give us wisdom to know what you want us to do. Give us courage to go ahead and do it even when it's hard. And give us compassion to do it in a way that's like Christ. To know what to do, to be willing to do it, and then to know the right way to do it. That's required of these judges that would be delegated to hear things in Israel. A morality and an ability. Notice also that God is not satisfied with merely declaring the word to his people. I want you to understand that. It has never been enough in God's provision for you to simply hear what is true. It's never been enough. It is not, in fact, the Great Commission. Go and tell people true things. That's not the Great Commission. And it's not true here. As God's earliest dealings with His particular people, He wants a practical system whereby the word of the law is implemented. At Sinai, God is going to tell His people one particular thing. Don't steal. Okay? That's good. You all know that, right? You know that's one of them? One of the ten? Don't steal. Okay? So now, um, you and a neighbor go in on the purchase of a new snowblower. And you're going you're gonna to share it and snowblow one 
driveway and then the other. You're going to split the cost of the snowblower, share it. And then one day your neighbor moves away. And as he's loading the U-Haul, you see the snowblower go on the U-Haul. Well, wait. Well, it's gray. Don't steal. I'm, I'm not. I paid for this. Well, yeah, but... Okay, so God's plan has never been for people just to know, don't steal. But to be able to apply his instructions practically. What does it mean now not to steal? And if I go and grab my neighbor by the collar and say, I want at least my part of the snowblower. Well, now am I coveting? And so God gives judges. Because it's not enough to know. God's people have to apply his will. Same in the church today. The Lord doesn't desire for us to see the law announced to people, but rather to see his will practically worked out in our lives. So we are told, I told you the Great Commission, we are told in Matthew 28, all authority belongs to Christ. So go out and proclaim him. Go out and baptize in his name, teaching people what God said. It's not the Great Commission, is it? Friends, that's not the Great Commission. There is a woeful mistake in saying it that way. Go out and teach people things God said is not what we read in Matthew 28. Go out and let everyone know, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything Jesus commanded. To apply, to live in every command of Jesus Christ. There are something like 60 commands in the book of James to be applied to our life. A counselor comes to Moses and we see this, this wonderful initial account of Gentile conversion. God's working in his, the life of his people his people serve as an illustration of who he is. That people around would see their works and give glory to their father. Like their light and salt. And, and this counselor comes to Moses, his father-in-law, and becomes a wise counselor, even wise to salvation. 2 Timothy 3 You've been well acquainted with the sacred writings of Scripture. This is the revelation of God. And this revelation is able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All of this revelation, all of what we're studying here about God in the Exodus is breathed out by God. And therefore, it benefits us in teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. Here's what I want to say to finish. I want you to take this home. First, when you evangelize this week, Lord willing, you speak the good news to people who have not yet believed it. This week, they're, they're everywhere. And as you do, it may simply sound like, have you heard about the wonders that God has done? Tell them about a people that God loved who were in slavery and God freed them. Secondly, it is not enough as his people. We see here in, in Exodus 18, it is not enough as his people to be fully acquainted with what God has said, but rather to be transformed into doing what God has said. That is discipleship. And if it is not true of you, if, if, if you're a collection of information about what God has said, that is, that's what we call dead orthodoxy. It is to believe historically true things, but have it not change you at all. 
if it's true of you, confess that sin. And because, to some degree, it's true of all of us, we are not yet accomplished at applying every command of Christ to every area of our life. And because none of us is accomplished, we are our brother's keepers. And we do the work of discipleship, teaching each other to observe, to function in everything Jesus commanded. Please understand that discipleship includes speaking the truth, but it can't end with verbalizing truth. There has to be a really personal, really relational requirement of each other mutually to apply the truth of God's will to our lives. Let me pray. Father, as we confess these things to you, even in this season where the church is reminded of sin and the need we have for this substitute atonement of Jesus Christ, we look forward in the calendar to 40 days to remind each other of just how desperately dependent we are on death substitution atonement. As we remind ourselves of that, Lord, we confess right now that we know much more about your will than we do. The things of your revelation and of your will have been more clearly seen by us than even what is seen by the world. Yet, our doing lags so far behind our knowing. And so God, I pray for the men and women in my life that see my doing lagging behind and would call me through this judicial system of speaking wise application of your instruction. I pray that I would be more lovingly consistent in speaking the application of your law and your will into the life of my brothers and sisters in congregation. And then, Lord, that we would all, right now, before you, call out for you to equip us to more faithfulness. And the way that we edify and sometimes rebuke, sometimes comfort each other, and not just what you have said, but how to observe it. So Lord, we, we pray together, as a church, we pray together that we would make uh, full provision of the great gift you've given us to be in each other's care as disciples. In Jesus' name, we pray to you and all the church said, Amen.